How many of you out there listening have siblings? What are your relationships like with your brothers and or sisters? I know some of you are probably very, very close to your siblings. You would consider them your best friends. The dynamic of the relationship between brothers and sisters is a very unique thing. You share the same parents, and your siblings could very well be your polar opposites, or you could be just alike. You could hate on each other so hard one minute and be the best of buds the next. Once your mom and dad are gone, you'll have each other to lean on for the rest of your lives. Ideally, it could or should be an indelible bond. No matter what comes between the two of you, there should always be a way for you guys to set aside those disparities and make amends. Because no matter what, family is everything. Most people will never know another human being in this world longer than they will know their brother or sister. They may fight incessantly throughout their entire childhood and adolescence, possibly even into adulthood. They may even lose touch for a period of their adult lives. Conversely, they may live incredibly close lives and stay connected forever. For some people, their siblings will always come first and foremost. If you really think about it, the relationships with your brothers and sisters are life's longest lasting relationships. Longer than your parents, longer than your spouses, even longer than the relationships you will have with your own children. With the exception of a few lucky people, longer than even a best friend. That's a lot of life to spend knowing another human being. Your siblings. Children experience their very first peer interactions with their siblings. It's also the first chance they have in dealing with the various complexities of a long-term relationship. Author Jeffrey Kluger wrote, From the time they are born, our brothers and sisters are our collaborators and co-conspirators, our role models and our cautionary tales. They are our scolds, protectors, goads, tormentors, playmates, counselors, sources of envy, objects of pride. They teach us how to resolve conflicts and how not to, how to conduct friendships and when to walk away from them. Sisters teach brothers about the mysteries of girls. Brothers teach sisters about the puzzle of boys. Some people are able to let go of negative experiences better than others. And siblings seem to be experts at this when it comes to each other. Kluger says, After the shooting stops, the fiercest sibling wars leave the littlest lasting damage. Indeed, siblings who battled a lot as kids may become closer as adults, and more emotionally skilled too, often clearly recalling what their long ago fights were about and the lessons they took from them. Even those with troubled or self-destructive siblings come away with something valuable. They learn patience, acceptance, and cautionary lessons. Siblings that go through different events with one another, whether it may be the loss of a loved one or their parents' divorce, they somehow pull it together and put their differences aside so they can band together for strength and support. Together they are able to help each other work through the pain 
They experience tough life lessons with an unwavering support system. And often, they grow closer than ever before. Whether it's because of all the time siblings spend with one another growing up, or the unnecessary need to pass judgment on one another, there is something quite unique that can be said about the way brothers and sisters understand one another. That being said, there are a few people out there that don't have any siblings, myself included. Whenever I say I don't know any only children, people come forward and tell me that they're an only child, and I'm usually surprised. I guess it just isn't something that you go around telling people. It kind of just comes up in casual conversation, I suppose. I often wonder why people are only children. I mean, there are many people I know who are only children of the same parents, but have half-brothers and sisters on either their mother's side or their father's side or both. But that still isn't exactly the same as being the only kid your parents ever had. Maybe we can start a discussion on the Facebook page after this episode drops. Any only children out there? Why did your parents stop at one? Were you that awful? Just kidding. I'm an only child, and I know exactly why I'm an only child. There are a couple of reasons. The simple reason is because when I was born, my dad was 50 years old. He wanted to have children with my mom, but being 50, he probably didn't think he was going to be able to keep up with raising a bunch of kids into his 70s. The more complex reason would be my mom. She's an immigrant from Vietnam. She met my dad in 1968 when he was working for the Central Intelligence Agency. He was sent there for four years. He was 43 and she was 18. So anyways, my mom was the third oldest of eight children out of 10 pregnancies and she was the oldest girl. As my mom would describe it, her mother was pregnant every single year. So naturally, my mom bore the brunt of the responsibility of helping her mom with all her kids, especially when war broke out and her two older brothers were drafted into the South Vietnamese army, never to make it home alive. You can imagine that her mother fell apart. My mom deeply resented her mother. She left home at 18 and never looked back. She married my dad, made her way to the United States, and helped the rest of her siblings make their way to this country as well. But her parents did not live long enough to make it here. Anyway, my point is, I never really asked or have been told by my mom this, but I've pretty much come to the conclusion that with her deep-seated resentment towards her own mother and her deep-seated resentment towards her siblings to this day, none of whom she speaks to, that my mom never really wanted to have children. I do believe she had me for my dad, but that was going to be it. And there you have it, the reason why I think I'm an only child. And if you're sitting here speculating that my mother and I have a relatively strained relationship, then you would be correct. But if you were to also speculate that I have a very close relationship with my own daughter, then you would be correct again. It's funny how life works like that. I do know, speaking as an only child, I have wondered how life growing up would have been different if I had a brother or a sister. I suppose I didn't know any different growing up, 
all of my friends had siblings, but the other dynamics of my family were so dissimilar than everyone else's. Like the fact that my mom was from Vietnam at a time that there weren't very many Asian people in the community I lived in at the time. Or the fact that my dad was old enough to be my grandpa. That not having any siblings being an odd thing didn't really occur to me. Being of mixed race, which was also a rare thing at the time, made me feel alienated all through school. Would having a brother or sister with the same issues as me have helped? I'll never know, but I tend to think that it would have. My daughter is an only child too, and her ethnic background is even more mixed up than mine, but she's lucky to be growing up in a much different time than the 70s and 80s. Everybody's diverse. Her identity as a mixed race child, and an only child, and a child with an absentee dad, none of which caused her to withdraw or isolate herself from others as the way I did. And not having any siblings is neither here nor there for her. Most of her friends her age have a number of younger half-siblings after their parents split and moved on to new relationships and had more children. So it sometimes feels like being an only child, but it isn't the same. Anyway, I digress. The reason I'm talking about siblings is because today's episode of California Dreaming is a story of two sisters. Twin sisters. Identical twin sisters. Who came to United States from Korea at the age of 12, settling in Irvine, California. And despite having a troubled home life with a gambling-addicted mother, the two beautiful twins were quite popular and eventually went on to become co-valedictorians of their graduating class. But that would be the pinnacle of each of their lives, as each of the girls, in their own way, tumbled down hard, as each of them struggled to transition into adulthood. And as you will see, greed, envy, and an intense sibling rivalry that is pretty much the mother load of sibling rivalries will drive one of these sisters to do the unthinkable. In today's episode of California Dreaming, the tale of sisterly love. Many years ago, on a TV series I know many of us have watched, Disappeared, I saw a story about the disappearance of Alicia Stokes. She went missing November 25, 2007 from Oakland, California. Her brother, who was the last known person to have seen her and admitted that the two had an argument prior to her having disappeared, I remember watching this and getting the feeling from the Disappeared episode that the brother was alluded to as being a possible person of interest in Alicia's disappearance. I thought about all the years I've watched the various investigation shows on TV, all the datelines and 48 hours and 2020s and everything in between. It's not very often the story involves siblings harming or killing one another. I mean, it happens, but it seems the unlikeliest of stories when it comes to murder in the family, you know? We see wives killing husbands, husbands killing wives, or them killing each other's romantic rivals. We see parents killing their children. 
people killing their own parents. These killings typically happen for some sort of gain for the perpetrator, usually monetary. But siblings killing siblings? It feels like the unlikeliest of things to happen in the family, but it happens. I've seen a story of a brother killing his brother so he may have his wife with whom he had been having an affair. I've seen siblings band together to take out one sibling out of greed over family money or property. These stories stand out to me because as I said, I'm an only child, so the concept of the sibling is foreign to me, but the relationships seems as though they should be resilient and unbreakable. That sibling bond with that person you would no longer than any other human being on the planet. They're the people that you fight with the fiercest one minute and then you're perfectly fine the next. So when I hear a story about a crime where someone tries to or successfully perpetrates a violent crime against their own sibling, I take notice and I certainly did almost 21 years ago when a story began to emerge out of one of Southern California's safest, most affluent Orange County communities, Irvine, where one twin sister decided that she wanted the other twin sister to cease to exist and that she would take over her life. Twins is yet another more intimate dimension of the sibling relationship. The bond between twins is definitely a unique one in so many ways. Being born together and sharing all of life's important milestones isn't something most others get to truly relate to. It's like being born with a built-in, ready-made best friend. Twins indeed share something special. And it seems as though in reading through studies about twin types, Identical girl twins appear to have the strongest bonds of all twin types. Unless you're a twin, then you already know what it's like, but can you imagine what it would be like to go through your entire life with someone that looks exactly like you right by your side? I find it absolutely fascinating. Some identical twins embrace their similarities. They enjoy the uniqueness of their dynamic. They are the best of friends and are inseparable. While other identical twins may work towards individuality to try to create their own identity, to be their own person as opposed to a half of a whole pair. Whatever the case, no matter what each twin does, there's always going to be that exact replica of you out there. And the same could be said for fraternal twins who look very, very similar to one another. The bond is strong, typically, and we know this. I know that when I've had a friend that is a twin, I usually end up being friends with both because they're always together. They understand each other so completely. Not only do they look exactly alike, but they have a deep understanding of the feelings and thoughts of their co-twin which also lends to the development of the close relationship. But as you will see in today's episode, being an identical twin doesn't always mean you've got your built-in best friend. Sometimes circumstances and life experiences 
throw curveballs and you're just not prepared for it. And if you are an identical twin and your life happens to be spiraling out of control, you might just come to the conclusion that your life would be a thousand times better if your twin ceased to exist. You eliminate them, you take over their life, and then you are one. Gina and Sunny Han were identical twin girls born five minutes apart in South Korea on April 4, 1974. According to the Korean culture, having twins is apparently seen as an extremely unlucky event. Sunny was the twin that was born first, and because she was five minutes older, in the Korean culture that made her the superior twin, and Gina, the younger one, was the inferior twin, and would always have to defer to her for her entire life. Their mother, Boo Kim, also made it clear that Gina was to always be subservient to the minutes older Sunny. She would always put Sunny first because Sunny was the oldest, and Gina did not like this. She did not like being beneath Sunny, but their mother would always keep her in her place, hold her down to remain below her sister. When their mother and father separated, the girls lived apart for several years, Gina with their father and Sunny with their mother. But as we've often heard about twins, despite being separated, they remained eerily connected. For example, if one of the girls got sick and went to the hospital, the other would be there sick as well. Eventually their father granted custody of the girls to their mother. They lived in South Korea until they were 12 when their mother immigrated to the United States. She took the girls to stay with relatives in Seattle for about a year, and then they moved down to Orange County, California where they began middle school. This is where things started to go wrong. Their mom obtained work as a cocktail waitress at a local casino, but she worked very long hours and also struggled with a crippling gambling addiction. She would often leave the girls for days at a time when she went away on gambling trips, usually with very little food, if any at all, and no one around to help take care of them. As a side note, I don't know if any of you outside of California know this, but there are a lot of casinos in California. Gambling is legal, not in every city, and they aren't always on Native American tribal land. I live a couple miles away from several casinos, but unlike Vegas, there are only table games. Under California law, slot machines are illegal, with a number of limited exceptions. And if you are living in Los Angeles or Orange Counties, it is very easy to take a number of San Diego County casino buses for a day trip down to any of those casinos where they have lots of comps and rewards for regular gamblers. Anyway, back to the story. With the girl's mother being gone for extended periods of time on her gambling jaunts and having no one else around, the girls developed a very deep, strong bond in order to cope with their mother's absence. Being in a foreign country and terrified of not knowing anything about the world around them, the girls were forced to grow up fast. Soon, their mom, deeply in debt and flat broke, was unable to care for the girls any longer. 
Realizing that she can no longer take care of them, she reached out to some relatives. She first contacted them asking for money for rent and food, but instead of loaning her money, they actually offered to take the girls in for her. So she sent the girls to live with these relatives in Campo, California, a city near the United States-Mexico border. By all appearances, the girls seemed to be doing well in their new adoptive home. Their first Christmas there was unlike anything they had ever experienced before. They enrolled in Mount Empire High School, and they worked hard to excel at their studies. They did everything they could to immerse themselves in the English language so they could do well in school. They both got straight A's. However, it was these times of extreme closeness that the girls' relationship began to develop into a particularly problematic rivalry. Since Sunny was older by five minutes, Gina was constantly driven to feel as though she had to do better than Sunny all the time in everything she did. So if one got an A, the other had to have an A+. When twins are as close as Gina and Sunny had been throughout their adolescence, the rivalry has the potential to grow quite fierce as they are in the constant battle to outdo one another in order to prove themselves the more superior individual. Anyone on the outside looking in, the rivalry seemed to be actually somewhat of a good thing, and it was paying off. As they progressed through school, Gina and Sunny were consistently at the top of the class, merely because they both needed to top one another, and in doing so, they topped everyone else in the process. They ended up being their graduating class co-valedictorians, and it was what everyone had expected. They both had done so well that it wasn't going to be any other way. I would have hated to see what would have happened if the school had a policy of only choosing one valedictorian. As their uncle or their adoptive father would say, these girls were identical in every way. Beyond looking like one another, their minds worked the same. They thought the same, and they functioned in the same exact manner. The rivalry, he suggested, was a healthy one. Out of it came tremendous success out of high school. And despite the rivalry, the girls were very close to each other. The bond seemingly unbreakable. Unfortunately, the rivalry between the girls did not stay healthy for very long after high school was behind them. Their relationship began to crack due to envy and jealousy issues between the girls. Socially, Sunny seemed to have the edge over Gina. She was gregarious and outgoing. She had lots of friends and her personality was inviting and charismatic, whereas Gina was somewhat of the dark horse. She would shy away from people in social settings. Sunny was always the one who got everything first. She would be the one who got a boyfriend first. She would be the one who got the job first. It would always be Sunny who would step up and chase after what she wanted and be willing to take on new life experiences. Gina would always be in the background, watching her sister win at life, all the while wanting to have what she had. But jealousy was quietly boiling under the surface for Gina. 
Graduating from high school would mean it would be time for the girls to go on their separate new adventures in life. But neither Gina nor Sunny would be prepared for life after high school. It wasn't too long before both girls' lives would begin to spiral out of control. And their rivalry, riddled with jealousy and resentment, would soon turn into all-out physical fights with one another. After high school, Gina had decided to join the Air Force, and Sunny earned a scholarship to the University of Laverne. Sunny wanted to go to college more than Gina did, but... Sunny didn't have any idea what she wanted to do with her life. She was going to try to immerse herself in the college experience and hope that something would pull her in and give her direction in the studies and in her life. With that scholarship in hand, Sunny was out to prove to herself and to the world that she could do just fine, if not better, on her own, and that she did not need her sister to succeed. And in the beginning, she did well. She was keeping her focus, maintaining her studies and her grades, staying on track. But Gina, who was away at basic training, was struggling with the rigors of military life. She eventually couldn't take it anymore and was frantic to get out of basic training. Gina first tried to leave basic training under the pretense that her father was very ill back home in South Korea, but that lie didn't work. So then she tried to claim that she was a lesbian. And with that, the Air Force relented and released her from the military. Going home, things did not magically get better for Gina. Without her mother or her sister around her for support, she began to fall apart. She wasn't prepared for the individual life after high school. She wasn't prepared to try living in a world without her twin sister by her side. Thinking that her sister was off living the fun, successful college life, Gina decided that she too needed to do something to get on her feet, so she started looking for a job. Unfortunately, she followed in her mother's footsteps and found work as a waitress in a casino with aspirations of becoming a blackjack dealer. And this as it was with her mother, would be her downfall. She too developed an all-consuming gambling addiction. And just like her mother, she gambled away all her money and debt began to take over her life. As Gina's debts continued to mount, she started to become more and more desperate. And one night, she consumed a handful of sleeping pills and washed them down with a bottle of liquor. She was hospitalized, and her family stepped in to try and help her pick up the pieces of her life, but the support from her adoptive family still wasn't enough. Gina's gambling addiction continued to have a hold on her, and she began to resort to petty crime to cover up her losses. She began getting into some real trouble by now, stealing money from friends and forging checks, and when that money ran out, Gina began to steal from the people who opened their hearts and their home to her and took her in as a child. She had broken into the family safe and stole a plethora of business checks, personal checks, and credit cards, and started spending everywhere. In total, she stole approximately $35,000 from her family's personal and business accounts. 
In the meantime, up at Laverne University, Sunny seemed to be doing outstandingly well. She was driving an expensive car and was always dressed in nice clothes, but nobody ever really knew where she was getting all this money from. As it turns out, she too was very much the proficient thief, just as her twin sister Gina. Sunny had developed this taste for finer, expensive things. So at some point, she decided to use a friend's credit card without her knowledge or permission to go on a shopping spree. She had spent over $1,300 on the credit card, and when her friend found out, she went straight to the police. Sunny was arrested for petty theft, made to pay a fine, and was placed on three years probation. The identical twins now shared identical criminal behavior, as Gina had also been arrested for theft shortly after Sunny, who had also been turned in by friends she had stolen from. Gina was sentenced to 10 days in jail and three years probation. Sunny also started to fall apart. She began having issues with her boyfriend. Her grades at Laverne University began to take a hit as well. Within a year and a half, Sunny had lost her scholarship and ended up having to drop out of school. After reaching a pinnacle in high school, being on top of the world, both girls came tumbling down hard. They simply were ill-equipped to deal with life in the real world. They struggled with issues stemming from the abandonment and neglect of their mother. They had no clear direction in life. They completely lacked the ability to cope, especially independent of one another. In trying to find their way in life, they got lost. They came to realize that in order to pick up the pieces and move forward, they really needed one another. Gina decided to skip out on her probation in San Diego and moved in with her sister who was now living back in Orange County, who invited her to come live with her. They had been separated for four years. This would be the first time that they lived together since they graduated from high school. However, living together was much easier said than done. Demons from their past, long dormant at this point, had been awakened. Gina began to feel jealous again towards her sister, seeing her do so well with the car and the apartment and all the nice clothes. She wanted all those things that her sister had. She had long established a pattern of stealing, so she decided to start stealing from her sister. Gina helped herself to Sunny's clothes, money, even her BMW without her permission. Sunny demanded that Gina respect her position in the family as the eldest and she was not afraid to use physical force in order to put Gina in her place. These physical fights between the sisters were vicious, and neighbors ended up calling the police for the disturbances. The police would be called to the girls' apartment a total of four times. One of those times, Gina had disappeared with Sunny's BMW for several days, and when she finally came back home, Sunny was raging and a fight broke out. And Sunny, who almost always had the upper hand, threw a telephone at Gina's face and broke her nose. Bloodied and humiliated, Gina laid on the ground, 
looking at the blood on her hands pouring from her nose. That was the moment that changed everything for Gina. A switch flipped in her mind. In that instant, Gina vowed that she would someday settle the score somehow and it would be for good. When police arrived at the scene of this fight, they spoke to Gina, who was still dealing with the bloody nose. In questioning her about the fight, she seized the moment to get back at her sister for breaking her nose and told police that Sunny was actually on probation for check fraud. So police began questioning Sunny and decided to arrest her. She spent three days in county jail. And as she sat in jail for those three days, Sunny was fuming with anger towards Gina. I don't know if she was more mad that she was sitting in jail or if because her younger sister had finally gotten the best of her. Probably the latter. Also, as you've probably guessed, while Sunny was in jail, Gina was living it up. She pretty much had access to Sunny's entire life, her car, her money, her credit cards, her ID, her clothes, everything. She went on a massive shopping spree. She took off with Sunny's car and it was sky's the limit as far as Gina was concerned. It was a delightful three days for Gina, but there would be hell to pay when Sunny would be sprung from the joint. She got home and she found that Gina had used her credit cards and her car so she immediately threw Gina out. But she didn't stop there. She decided to press charges on Gina for the theft. So she called the police and had her sister arrested. She also had that warrant for skipping out on her probation. This time, Gina was sentenced to six months in jail. As strange as the girl's behavior was, don't you think it was an oddly symmetrical relationship? One twin steals and so does the other. One twin goes to the police to rat on the other and the other ends up doing the exact same thing. And as Gina sits in jail, her rage begins to swell towards Sunny. It was her turn to get back at Sunny for turning her into the police and causing her to be in jail for all this time. She decided that she was going to end this rivalry once and for all. She comes to the conclusion that Sunny is the sole reason why she is struggling in life. She blames Sunny for all of her failures and she needed to do something about it by getting her out of the way permanently. So, while on a work furlough, Gina escaped custody and made her way down to San Diego. She was on a mission to set a plan in motion. A plan to kill Sunny and assume her identity. She decided that being a twin was something that was just not going to work for her anymore. She was going to make herself an only child. In order for her plan to go smoothly, Gina needed an accomplice. She starts talking to people about her plot to kill Sunny and see if she can find anyone to help her. 
She wasn't at all discreet about her plans either, bringing it up in casual conversations with people she didn't even really know, asking if they happened to know anyone who would kill her sister. Ultimately, Gina was able to solicit the help of two teenagers who were actually willing to help her with her plan to kill Sunny. She recruited the cousin of a friend, 16-year-old Archie Bryant. Archie turns around and somehow convinces his 15-year-old friend, John Seraph, to help him carry out the plan too. Are you sitting here scratching your head as to how two teenage kids were talked into something so ridiculous? Well, get this. They agreed to do the deed for $100 each. Yeah, you heard that right. $100. Not a couple of hundred dollars. Not several hundred dollars. Not a few hundred dollars. A hundred dollars. I guess these two knuckleheads didn't call around to find out what the going rate for a contract killing was at the time. Well, luckily, yours truly did, and it appears that there is really no set standard in terms of compensation scale for contract hits. Unless maybe you're in the mafia, then there's a pay scale. But it seems the range is anywhere between $500 and $50,000, depending on who the victim is and who's hired to do the deed. Apparently, Australia did a study on contract killing pay scale, and when you add them all up and take the average, it's figured the average cost of a contract killing is approximately $8,200. So, Gina managed to hit the bargain basement prices for getting these two ding-dongs to do it for $100 each. Undoubtedly, she was able to easily manipulate these two kids into going along with her plan. You will come to find that good old Gina, she got her money's worth, that's for sure. Gina figured she had every detail of her plot down to a T. She would drive the two teens she hired from San Diego to Sunny's new apartment complex in Irvine in a rented car. When they would get there, she would have very strict instructions for these two to follow. The idea was that she would send the two teens in to Sunny's apartment and tie her up with rope and duct tape, gag her to muffle any screams, and put her in the bathtub so Sunny would be there waiting for Gina to come in. They had very specific orders not to kill Sunny when they entered the apartment. That was a task Gina wanted to save all for herself. I know what you're all thinking. Nothing about this plan sounds like it's going to go well, right? I mean, I'm the parent of a teenager, and I can't even depend on her to do the dishes, much less pull off anything remotely close to what these kids have been hired to do. So, once she's alerted that Sunny was securely bound and gagged in the bathtub, she would come in, kill her sister, assume her identity, no one would be the wiser, and she could live happily ever after. Seems legit, right? Yeah, right. Gina was done living in Sunny's shadow. Even though Sunny's seemingly well-to-do life was in reality not that much better off than Gina's, Gina really wasn't seeing that for what it was. She wanted Sunny's life. 
She wanted to be done with hers. She wanted a new start. And she was going to make it happen for herself by any means necessary. I want to pause here and take a moment to absorb the gravity of Gina Han's plan. If there is one thing that is universal amongst all of us, as we find ourselves as human beings fiercely divided over just about anything and everything these days, we bicker with each other, we bicker with family, neighbors, authorities, people of other backgrounds, races, religions, orientations, cultures. Every time I pass by the news, there's some kind of conflict going on all over the place, all over the world, all across the board. But one thing is for certain amongst nearly all of us is that murder is a very taboo act of violence unless it's committed in times of war or self-defense. And this, the plan to kill a member of your own family, it's an extraordinarily extreme thing to commit in any culture, just about as extreme as it gets. And then, thinking back upon the earlier discussion of siblings and how the bond between them is so unique and typically resilient through the duration of their lives, and add in the fact that these women are twins, an even more exceptional bond is forged between twin siblings for one twin to decide that the solution to all her problems is to have the other one murdered is so much for me to try to wrap my mind around. I mean, murdering someone, anyone just randomly is unthinkable to all of us. At least I hope it is. But to murder your own identical twin? I just can't even. Like, how did Gina get to that place? How did she go there? I can't help but feel a huge part of her disconnected from the gravity of her actions. I mean, I'm no psychologist, but getting to a place in your mind when you're ready to knock somebody off can't possibly be an easy journey, am I right? I mean, we're human beings. We're not wired for evil doings. We're coded to experience feelings of compassion for one another. We've seen so many examples of our compassion for our fellow human beings this past week in Texas and the surrounding areas that have been ravaged with floods. We are coded to experience feelings of guilt. We have in us this inherent type of empathy that if we were to somehow cause some kind of pain, we often experience a certain degree of suffering ourselves from having caused that pain which can quite possibly be much worse and more intense than the pain we initially caused. Somehow, our connections to the emotions in us, the compassion, the empathy, and the guilt get severed. Those things inhibiting people from committing these violent acts are diminished. It takes time to reach that point where a person has decided to commit an act of violence. Even if this had come as a surprise to some people looking in on the Han sister's case, it's likely that this all took time to build up in Gina's mind and nobody really saw it coming. 
Dr. Peter Ash, Director of the Psychiatry and Law Service at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, states, there is a pathway to violence that starts with some thinking and then fantasizing about a plan. Then there may be a more explicit planning phase that other people don't particularly notice. He goes on to say that the idea of killing someone eventually turns into intention and this leads the person to begin tracking their victim and obtaining weapons. The psychological buildup to a violent outburst with the intent to kill usually takes a minimum of a few days. As in Gina's case, she was stewing in jail for a six-month sentence, a jail sentence she blamed her sister for, and she likely sat there thinking about a plan to get rid of Sunny. absolutely could not wait for the six-month stint to get it done, thus escaping from the work furlough detail. According to Dr. Charles Risen, a psychiatrist and director of the Mind Body Institute at Emory University says, a person who has already decided to kill someone else may develop an eerie composure. I could very easily see both of these sisters acting like this actually but Gina being in jail, for sure. And they also firmly believe that the moment to turn back and not follow through with their murderous plans has passed. I guess this would be known as the point of no return. Despite a number of risk factors, there's no real predicting when someone's going to do something like what Gina had been planning to do. There are warning signs, and there were likely some that were overlooked in her case. And from the interviews I saw from the girl's adoptive dad, he claims that the girls were thick as thieves. Although he didn't say that, I did, thinking it was kind of funny and ironic, but he also says that not only does he have no idea where any of this came from, and that there wasn't any way that Gina would ever do anything to harm her sister. All I can say is that I feel for their father, and I can see that he loves them very much and he just isn't going to see Gina's actions for what they were, a cold-blooded murder plot against her own identical twin sister. Was Gina psychotic? I am, once again, by no means an expert, but from what I found while researching the story, it doesn't seem as though she fits the mold for someone suffering from any kind of psychosis. To me, it seems to be a crime born of one of those age-old motives, jealousy. How did she get to the point of deciding murder was the answer? It is very likely that, in her own mind, Gina somehow dehumanized her twin. She simply shut her out in her mind as an entity less than herself. As Dr. Peter Ash states, it's striking when you talk to people who have done things like this, how they are really preoccupied with their own feelings and have in their mind stopped thinking of the person as a full, real human being. Even with all of this reasoning, all of these possible explanations as to how Gina reached the point where she wanted to kill Sunny, I still find it hard to believe that this was actually a thing Gina wanted for her sister. It's one of those things you just don't ever hear happening when you talk about murder for hire. Uh, anyway, 
Back to Gina's not-so-well-laid plans. On November 6, 1996, Gina had already obtained a gun and with her two teenage accomplices in that car, she made the drive from San Diego to Irvine. Once they arrived in Orange County, they stopped at a store and made an ominous purchase of rope, garbage bags, industrial tape, and cleaning supplies. The teens would use the rope and tape to tie up Sunny and gag her, and Gina would use the gun to kill her in the bathtub, and the garbage bags and cleaning supplies would be used to clean up the mess. Shortly after 3 p.m. on November 6th, Gina pulled into Sunny's apartment complex parking lot and directed her accomplices to Sunny's front door. However, when the boys got to the front door, it was answered by one of Sunny's roommates, Helen. They pushed their way through the door and grabbed Helen, who started screaming. Sunny was in her bedroom, and she could hear the screaming from behind the closed bedroom door. She assumed that the roommate was being sexually assaulted, so she got on her cell phone and tried to discreetly call 911. I was unable to find a completely isolated audio clip of her 911 call, but Sunny is barely audible as she's speaking to the operator. She's telling dispatch in a whisper that she thinks her roommate is being assaulted and to hurry, hurry, hurry. Things become even more desperate as Sunny's end of the call goes dead and dispatch relays that to the officers that she's lost the call. While John was working to restrain Helen, Archie had burst into Gina's room and hung up the call. He asked her who she was calling and she told him she had been on the phone with a friend. For some reason, I guess because teenagers, he believed her. He proceeded to tie her up with duct tape and rope and brought her out of the bedroom. All the while, Gina's waiting outside in the parking lot in the getaway car. The two hitmen, and I even hesitate to call them that, the two hit idiots corralled the girls into the bathroom and made them get into the bathtub. One of the hit idiots said to the other hit idiot, go tell Gina we're ready to polish her off. As Archie stayed in the bathroom to guard the bound and gag women in the bathtub, John ran out to the car to get Gina. This was the moment when Sunny knew that it was her own sister that was involved with this, them being tied up and held at gunpoint in the apartment. Sunny obviously was stunned to hear this guy say Gina's name, and fear began to overcome both her and Helen, as they knew this wasn't some random thing. This was a setup. This was a plan to have this done to her by her own sister. They were certain that now knowing Gina had taken their rivalry this far, that they were likely not going to get out of this alive. If you get tied up and told to kneel in a bathtub, you could be pretty certain that it's pretty much over. What Gina and her two hit idiots didn't realize is that Irvine Police Department was only three blocks away. And with that, and the fact that the city of Irvine, as I had talked about in episode eight, the story of Christopher Dorner, who went on a killing spree in 2013, 
which started in Irvine, it is one of the safest cities in the state of California, if not the entire United States. So I'm fairly certain Irvine PD weren't very busy when the 911 call came in. They arrived within minutes of the call going dead. The apartment complex became quite the scene as police quickly surrounded the entire place. Officers arrive and find Gina and John in the parking lot, and of course, the two play it off as casually as they possibly can, even asking the police what was going on. The cops obviously have no idea that this is the woman who set this whole murder plot up and simply told her to just stay back. Gina plays it cool and gets back into her car along with John. Meanwhile, back in the apartment, Archie goes into full-blown panic mode when he heard the police arriving. He attempted to leave the apartment, but there were police everywhere. So he quickly closed the door and went back inside the apartment, but there was no other way out. He had the gun in his hand. He had these two women tied up in the bathtub. His accomplices, as far as he can tell, have all but ditched him. And he is about to take the fall for this whole entire thing. Archie started to frantically tear the tape off the girls' wrists and take off their gags, desperately trying to undo what he's done to them. He frees Sonny and Helen, hides the gun, and quickly tries to tell them to come up with a story to try and explain all of this away. He begs the two women, pleads with them to tell the police that this was all a joke and that everyone was just kidding, and to try to make all of this go away, but it was too late. He takes Sonny and Helen out of the bathroom and led them out of the apartment. The girls ran up to the police, frantic and hysterical, crying and panicking with their hands up and duct tape hanging from their hair and their wrists. The just kidding explanation just wasn't going to fly. Archie exits the apartment with his hands up and police take him into custody. Gina and John are watching all of this unfold from across the parking lot. And Gina quickly decides to get the heck out of Dodge. There is no way she was going back to jail for this, especially due to the fact that she's already been in trouble for skipping out on the work furlough. They quickly booked it out of the parking lot, leaving Archie holding the bag. The two quickly started heading back towards San Diego. About an hour after this whole botched murder-for-hire plot failed miserably, Gina and John stopped at a bank in Laguna Beach, California, a town south of Irvine along the route back towards San Diego, and Gina makes a cash advance on one of Sonny's credit cards for $5,000 in cash. Her plan was to try to obtain a new car and ditch the getaway car. By 7 p.m., the pair had made their way further south to San Juan Capistrano, to look for a dealership to buy a car using Sonny's identification. But the plan soon fizzles out as the dealership needed 24 hours to run a credit check. Of course, police are tracking all of these credit transactions and they are quickly closing in on Gina and John. Only 80 miles away from the international U.S.-Mexico border, the two make a beeline for Mexico. Her thinking is probably if she can make it into Mexico, she can lay low for a while until the heat dies down and she can escape prosecution for this plot to kill her sister. Simple as that. 
Gina can only outrun and outmaneuver the police for so long. It's only a matter of time before they're going to catch up with her. By 10.30 that same night, Gina and John had made their way to the San Diego airport with the plan of swapping out rental cars. But, unfortunately, the police were one step ahead of the two and were waiting for them at the car rental place at the airport. Police cornered them inside the rental office and they surrendered without incident. When the police search Gina's rental car, they find Sonny's ID, passport, credit cards, and $4,000 in cash. And in the trunk, oh, the damning evidence be damned. Officers find cleaning supplies, trash bags, along with the receipt for those items, plus rope and industrial tape. It was a recipe for murder right there in that trunk. The three are finally all in custody. And by morning, the news gets out to the media. And the sensational story is splashed all over the front pages and television news media outlets everywhere. The story had all the makings to cause a media circus around the case. A twin sister plotting to murder and take over the life of the other twin sister. It was fantastic for the media. When the story first broke, Sunny was convinced that her sister was plotting to kill her and decided to go to the jail and confront her about it. Gina explained to her that it wasn't a plot to kill her, and this was all a lie cooked up by the police and that she never meant her any harm. I guess it was Sunny's inability or unwillingness to see the truth for what it was, or her desire to not want to think her sister was capable of such a thing. But she believed Gina's explanation, and she completely, 100% sided with her sister. She was unwilling to cooperate with the district attorney who was prosecuting the case. She was unwilling to do anything that was going to risk Gina going to jail for a very long time. Unfortunately for Sunny, those decisions are not up to her. It's up to the district attorney, and they were not about to back down because of Sunny's uncooperativeness. Sunny knows at some point she's going to have to take the stand and testify in the murder-for-hire case against her sister. And what she was planning to say or do on behalf of her sister was anybody's guess. The case went to trial almost a year later in October of 1997. Sunny, of course, was the star witness for the prosecution. The first day that she was on the stand, she talked about her childhood, growing up in Korea, immigrating to America, and all the difficulties of acclimating to a new and foreign culture, not knowing the language and having an absentee mother. From the stand, she told Gina that she loved her and they'd always be sisters. Much to the surprise of the courtroom, Sunny stood by her sister she testified that she never believed that her sister intended to have her killed. Sunny was in complete denial of what Gina had plotted against her, and there wasn't anything anyone could say that was going to change that. After her first day on the stand, Sunny delivered powerful testimony in defense of her sister. She was strong, well put together, impeccably dressed, hair and makeup were on point, reserved, bright, composed, well-spoken, 
she came across so well from the stand. However, on her second day of testimony, a completely different Sunny showed up to the courthouse. She appeared to be in a very bizarre state. She had on no makeup, her hair was a mess, she was strangely underdressed for court, overly casual, I guess you could say. She had trouble focusing, she could barely walk. When she took the stand, she turned to the judge and told her that she went to the drugstore and took an overdose of sleeping pills and then proceeded to collapse and slump over in the stand and had to be escorted out of the witness box. The judge put a stop to the proceedings and an ambulance was immediately called for Sunny. She was taken out of the courtroom on a stretcher in front of all of the news cameras. It was by far the most dramatic day of the trial. I can only imagine the kinds of pressure Sunny was feeling having to testify at her sister's conspiracy to commit murder trial, conspiracy against her no less. Sunny was subsequently treated for the overdose and was able to return to the stand a week later to finish out her testimony. To most trial watchers, it seemed that Gina's defense had strongly benefited from her sister's testimony. Friends and family of the twins began to strongly feel that Gina would be exonerated from the charges against her. Her family, as a matter of fact, was convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt on that day in November of 1996, there was no way in the world Gina would have pulled that trigger on her sister. But everyone knew at that time, this case happening in the wake of the O.J. Simpson trial a year earlier, you never know how a jury was going to decide on a case. Sunny was confident her sister would either be exonerated or at the very least serve a very minimal term in prison. Oh, how wrong she would be. After 10 hours of deliberations over a period of three days, the jury found Gina Hahn and her two hit idiots guilty on all charges. On sentencing day, Sunny begged the court for leniency for her sister. If she could have had it her way, Gina would not spend another moment in jail for this. But Sunny's pleas fell on deaf ears. The judge wasn't having any of it as she sentenced Gina to the maximum, 26 years to life. Gina crumpled in her seat and broke down into tears. The judge felt that Gina was a menace to her family as well as to society. Archie was sentenced to eight years, John to six years. Both of them are free today. Following the trial, Sunny rose to fame on the heels of the story of her evil twin. She became somewhat of a celebrity, doing a lot of TV appearances and interviews. She hired a manager and even floated the idea of collaborating on a movie about the story. But it seems Sunny took whatever money she made and ran. She abruptly dropped out of public view and as far as I could see, as of today, where she is now is a mystery. But where her sister is, isn't a mystery. She is still in prison. 
And it just so happens that she is in the same prison that the defendant from our last episode is too, at Chowchilla Women's Facility. And just like I said last week about Marjorie Noller sitting in Chowchilla Women's Facility, sweating away in this heat wave, same goes for Gina Hahn. She will be eligible for her first parole hearing in 2020. And that brings to a close this dramatic saga of the Han sisters, a story that captivated court watchers all over California, clamoring for something new and scandalous following the Simpson acquittal of 95. I was finally able to bring myself to poke fun at some of the people involved in the story, because in the end, nobody died or even got hurt. This show is often so serious and dramatic that it was really a refreshing change of pace for me. Before I get to the thank yous and the social media stuff, I want to address an issue with last week's episode about the Presa Canarios. In referring to some information about dog socialization, I think I was talking about chaining dogs and how damaging it is for them psychologically. I refer to them as pack animals. And through a discussion with listener and Rumi, Vanessa, that it's inaccurate to refer to dogs as pack animals, as she informed me. It's not an appropriate description of canine behavior. From what I can remember in the article I was reading, I got the impression that the word pack was used to emphasize the detriment of chaining the dogs has on them, that they need to be around other dogs and or people, that they are not wired to be isolated in such a way. So in using the term pack so loosely, it might have been better said social animals as opposed to pack animals, which is the point I was trying to get across. Thank you, Vanessa, for pointing out the difference. I wanted to take some time to thank a few people for my most recent reviews on iTunes. TXO and Nick Park both gave the show five stars. Thank you so much for your reviews. They help give the show more visibility, and I really appreciate you taking the time to jump through all of Apple Hoops to make your way through the review section. It means so much to me. And if you already haven't left a review on iTunes and you'd like to take the time to do so, my offer to send out free show stickers for your reviews, any stars, not just five stars, but five would be nice, my offer still stands. And it probably will forever because I got so many stickers. Email me at californiapod at yahoo.com with your mailing information and I will get those out to you. If you follow me on social media, on the Facebook discussion page, on Twitter at CaliforniaPod, or on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. Some of you guys have already received your stickers, and I want to thank you for sharing your pictures. Oh, and if you visit the California Dreaming Patreon page, and you would like to help the show grow, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And as we grow, there will be bigger and better show perks to come in the future. I'm hoping to get back to making more mini episodes and new show merchandise. However, any pledges received in the month of September will be going towards Hurricane Harvey relief efforts. 
And I also need to thank the most recent reviews on Facebook from Megan, Stephanie, and Nikki with two Ks. Thank you so very much for your reviews. And the show stickers are for you too, so email me if you would like some. I'd also like to remind you that California Dreaming is now proudly a part of the Orbital Jigsaw family of podcasts, an eclectic group of outstanding podcasts from a variety of genres, like The Concession Stand, a weekly podcast where hosts Nick and Andy geek out over all things entertainment, or Busted Wide Open, where hosts Nick and Sir Ian Dangerous bring you all the hottest news in sports entertainment and pro wrestling. Or Super Nerds UK, where hosts Ben, Ian, Tim, and Simon take an irreverent look at pop culture. Or Historium, a podcast devoted to telling strange, obscure, or otherwise interesting stories from history. And the Dirty Bits podcast. Join host Tawny Plattis each week for her casual retellings of the sexy, scandalous, and salacious stories your history teacher likely left out. So if any of these sound good to you, check those out at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again so much for joining me for this week's tale. For everyone who's been affected by last week's hurricane and floods, you are in our thoughts and prayers. If you would like to help with disaster relief, there are a couple of places you can visit to find out more information at www.youcaring.com, www.redcross.org, or www.aspca.org, and all proceeds from California Dreaming Patreon pledges will be put towards the relief effort as well. Please have a wonderful, fun, and safe Labor Day weekend, and until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>